there isn't any real secret to really what you're doing defensively, whether it's man-to-man or zone. It's really number one, who's doing it? And then number two, how well are you doing it? You know, and are you doing it together? I'm not sure if Brad talked about this on the podcast, but like one of the things he said, which I think is really smart all the time, was a system with no effort is a bad defense. Players that play with effort with no system is an average defense. And then when you can combine both together, that's when you have like a championship level top five defense. Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome pro scout for the Boston Celtics, Brandon Bailey. Coach Bailey is here today to discuss avoiding mid-season burnout, building better individual and team defenders, footwork and angles on great ice coverages, and we talk elite offensive rebounders and defending cutters during the always fun start, sub, or sit. This episode is brought to you by our partners at Fast Model Sports. Their fast draw playbook software is a great resource for coaches to build and organize their plays and drills. We use fast draw on a daily basis to create and share featured playbooks in our Sunday morning newsletter. And along with fast draw, we use fast scout with our teams for detailed scouting reports, key stats, and to share video with players and staff. Listeners of our podcast can now receive 15% off all fast model products when they use the code SGPOD15. That's 15% off all Fast Model products with the code SGPOD15. Visit slappingglass.com for more information today. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Brandon Bailey. Coach, thank you very much for making the time and coming on this morning. We're really excited to talk to you. Yeah, I appreciate it. I'm a big fan of what you guys are doing. Appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. We wanted to start talking about burnout and focus first on avoiding burnout habits or things that you can do before you know you're just completely overloaded and need to maybe take a break. And so for someone like yourself that has been through multiple NBA seasons and has had to balance life and basketball and coaching, what are some of your thoughts? to start with ways that coaches and people can kind of build those habits to avoid the burnout? Yeah. So I think the most important thing as a coach is your time, or one of the most important things in this business in general is your time. You know, the more you can be efficient and be productive in the time that you're in the office, the better, you know, that's honestly avoiding burnout. You know, I enjoy working. I enjoy being in the office. I also have other responsibilities. And like you said, it's a long season. You don't want to get burned out. So the more that you can Get your work done and feel prepared and get out of the office. I think the better off you're going to be. It's going to allow you to have a mental break. And then, you know, it kind of negates any kind of anxiety that you might have. You know, if you feel like you're not as prepared or kind of like lollygagging and not working as efficiently, you know, I'll never forget like one of the first meetings I ever had in Boston. I was with Mike Longabardi. He was our defensive coordinator. And there's nobody that works harder than him. He's super productive, works really hard, you know, has some generally long hours. But, you know, one of the first meetings I ever had with him, he was like, hey, this is what time you're expected to be in the office. This is what's expected from you from like a work standpoint. But once you're done, you know, we need you to get out of the office. It's a long season. There's practice, games, 
playoffs, you know, whatever. But he was like always really cognizant of that. And it really was beneficial for me being a young coach, having a young family. You know, that was really important to me. Going back to saying, hey, leave the office or, you know, don't come in. Was that hard? And I guess the answer would be yes. When you're trying to come up as a coach and trying to prove yourself and prove how much you know to sort of figure out that balance of, okay, I want them to know that I'm doing my work. I want them to know that I know my stuff, but I also need to take care of myself. Yeah. I mean, that's important. I mean, I was coming from a college situation too, where it was almost like a badge of honor with like, how long can I be in the office? You know what I mean? Like, am I going to be the last one here? But, you know, again, coming from him who was super hardworking, had come up from a position where I was, he started as a video coordinator as well. And just to hear him say like, Hey, don't just be in here to be in here, like get your work done and then get out. Honestly, like coach Stevens was the same way. He's as prepared, as hardworking as anybody that I've ever seen. But he's also like a great father, like a great family man and makes time for all that stuff for his kids during the year. You know, seeing that example and seeing how successful people like him or, you know, any of his assistants, Micah Shrewsbury, Jay Larnega, Jamie Young, Jerome Allen, just seeing those guys and seeing how successful they have been coming up and also how great of fathers that they are were just great examples for me. I'm like, hey, like it's okay to leave and, you know, be with your family, spend the time with them and be present with them as much as possible. To me, that time with my family has always really helped me from a mental side of like taking a break and just being with them. Coach, how do you stay efficient with your time when it comes to video scouts, you know, just all this information and all this rise in technology that kind of puts everything at your fingertips? How do you stay efficient with all of that? I have a process that I go through preparing for a game. I try not to get too ahead of what I'm doing because then you can get overwhelmed, you know, like say you have four out of the next six scouts or whatever, you know, like I try not to get so far ahead where all of a sudden it's just going to totally consume me and overwhelm me. I've developed a pretty good process of like, this is what I have to do today before this game. Game day, this is what it kind of looks like. That's really helped me. You've been a part of a very high achieving organization as far as ability to process information and have it show on the court. Going back to the concept of overload and the potential to you know have so much information, scouts, sets, stats, all those kinds of things. What are ways as an organization that you've seen people do a good job of disseminating the information and chunking it down to what the players actually need on the court so they're not overloaded mentally? Yeah, I mean, that's really stemming from Coach Stevens. He has a great process of this is the information, first of all, that he needs to be prepared. And we handle so a lot of that stuff for him. And then, you know, he digests it and then spits it back out to the players. He's really big on only being on the court, especially, you know, middle to late of the season, as long as they absolutely need to. We're not going to be on there any longer than we have to. We're going to be really efficient on the court and what we need to get done from an offensive and defensive standpoint, and then get out of there. Like he's really big on making sure that their legs and their minds are fresh so that they're ready to go and play in the game. From an analytics standpoint, it's obviously really, really important to what we do to prepare our players and any kind of schemes that we need from a game standpoint and from a player development standpoint. But, you know, we're not going to like overload them with stats and different jargon. We're more so using it as like a tool of helping us make decisions to better them as players from a development standpoint or from like an offensive or defensive scheme. The only time we would ever give them 
any type of stat, if it was like so obvious or like painted such a big picture for them and so kind of general that it could click for them and then, you know, set the tone mentally for them in the game. Want to transition into talking some X's and O's defensively. And one of the things I know we've talked about a little bit is thoughts on building a better individual defender from reads to movement to all of that. So wanted to start there with you on just, you know, your thoughts on how guys can actually begin to improve as an individual defender rather than just, you know, as a part of a whole group. I think, again, if you just invest time in it, the better you're going to write. Rightfully so, there's been more and more player development coaches, more and more coaches, especially in the NBA, dedicated specifically to like offensive skill. Especially if you want to play in meaningful games in the NBA, the more and more you're, you have to be a serviceful defender, right? Because, you know, just like offensively, like if you're not a great shooter, they're just going to not guard you, overhelp on your best offensive players, and you're going to get played out of a series. Defensively, if you can't defend at a high level, you know, they're just going to pick on you and pick on you until you're just played out of the series. So I think just, you know, players, rightfully so, they're really important skills focusing on shooting, passing, you know, offensive decision-making. There needs to be some time allocated to the defensive side of the ball, whether that's lateral quickness, footwork, crossover steps, contesting shots. And then something that's, you know, not worked on enough is defensive decision-making. You know, like who are you guarding? You know, what are the different defensive situations that are occurring on the floor? Is there a problem that needs to be fixed that you can solve? You know, that's just an area that, it might be given some type of lip service, but isn't really given, I think, the time that it really needs in order to develop guys that can stay on the court really in meaningful games in the NBA. Coach, so you mentioned building guys' reads, basic guys being able to to read better individually. What are ways that you've looked at trying to help guys improve their individual reads and decision-making defensively? I think it starts with film, right? Just showing them you know, here, this is a situation that happened. It could have been that player. It could have been one of their teammates. You know, these are something that I think, you know, hey, this is an area I think we can be better with our decision-making. Hey, you should have done X, Y, and Z. That's something that I think a lot of people do. But one thing I think that you could do as well is developing some type of decision-making within your drills that you're doing. For example, if you're doing some type of basic shell defensive work, right? And then you do a basic, a lot of coaches do like trap the box or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, how do you incorporate some type of decision into that? Well, okay, does this guy really need help at the rim? Yeah. I think that's a huge decision to make, especially in this day and age when three-point shooting is so prevalent. You don't want to overhelp at the rim. Like one stat that we would talk about often that we felt like painted a good picture for us in Boston was this is a general percentage here, but it was like something like 90% of shots at the rim that are uncontested layups go in. Right. If you just contest that same shot, it drops to like 55 or 60 percent, something like that. So we don't want to like overhelp at the rim when we don't have to. So just kind of building in that decision making process, the better. Same thing, you know, from a pick and roll standpoint, if you're on the ball defensively, listening for the call, working on your communication and then adjusting your stance based on whatever that communication is, right? So if you hear an ice, okay, now I got to get into an ice position. You get hit by a screen. You got to fight to square it up. You're squared on the ball. You don't have dirty eyes. You're staring at the ball. You're not looking around. And now you hear a switch. Now I got to be squared on the ball. Don't get rejected. 
and then fight the switch underneath the screen to negate that roll to the rim. So again, those are like just two basic things. There were other things that we would do from a decision-making standpoint, just kind of having those built into what you're doing from like a shell defense, from a multiple pick and roll perspective. I think the better off your players are going to be in making those decisions. Coach, a follow-up for me is kind of looking at the technique and the pick and rolls. You mentioned it. And my first question is the, the stance and the ice defense. What are you stressing with your stance when icing a pick and roll? It's usually important. You have to direct the ball when you ice the ball and pick and roll, or if you're in a week or whatever, you know, the more you can get into the basketball, make them uncomfortable, the better off that you're going to be. I remember uh, listening to one of your podcasts really early with Zach Boyver. And he's quoted Brad in it and said something like 90% of the time when he looks at something that was wrong in pick and roll, it was the impact on the ball more often than not. Obviously, you can talk about off ball positioning, you know, where the big is or whatever, but you have to impact the ball. A lot of times, you know, anytime there was something wrong for us defensively in a pick and roll standpoint, we can kind of point to that as being, you know, what went wrong. When we want to ice, you want to connect, you know, kind of like behind their hip almost and to kind of negate any sweep through fouls and everything like that. We almost want to treat it as like, hey, there is no screen. You know, if you get into the ball and you make him uncomfortable and you're dictating the action, there should be no pick like whatsoever. A lot of people called it like canceling screens, Mm -hmm. this and that I learned like in Zoom over the pandemics. Yeah, like the more you can just get into the ball, direct him one direction where you want him to go and then fight to square off the ball, the better off you're going to be. Is there a certain foot angle you're telling the guys to give them a reference squared up with the sideline? We want to almost like your top foot above his top foot. That'll help you keep the ball on the side. You know, like Ryan Pannone will always talk about there isn't really an ice. That for us, like gives us like a good marker of like, hey, this is where we want to be in order to like keep the ball where we want it to be, which is on that side of the floor. So my foot above his hip or top foot, and then really try to connect as best as you can right to his back hip there to negate any type of like sweep through foul or any type of things like that. And then having high active hands, once you have kind of knife through and, and avoided getting picked, you know, now like knifing through getting high active hands to force deflections and hang time passes and things like that. My other than kind of follow up too with the guard and this technique of fighting over screens. I mean, I'm assuming it's going to start again with impacting the ball, but then finally, what are you teaching them with getting over that screen and through it and not dying in the screen? It has to start with you impacting the ball. Like we would talk a lot about like, you have to hit the ball handler before you hit the screen. You know, like if you connect and and really are physical without fouling on that ball, it almost deters him from even using the pick. It's just harder for him to use. If for whatever reason you're unable to do that, you know, we would always try to talk about like dipping your shoulder low, getting skinny. Some people would talk about like getting skinny, kind of fighting your way through there, knifing through with that hand in order to avoid that hit right there. Sticking with on-ball individual defensive technique, now maybe say taking a pick and roll out of it, but just trying to guard the ball and your thoughts on sliding versus turning and running, I guess the individual on-ball technique and what really works at the NBA level, but then probably filters all the way down. Yeah, I think you have to have the ability to do both. You know, I remember coming up in grade school or high school or college, even like people are always saying, don't click your heels, don't cross your feet over. I just don't think that a lot of that is realistic, especially like today with how 
quick and strong a lot of these guys are. We want to slide in chest and have great lateral quickness as much as we can. But at some point, you're going to have to have quick hips, cross over your feet and beat him to a spot in order to cut off his kind of penetration right there. You know, that's something that you know, we like to work on a lot with our guys the last few years. And I feel like, especially with the amount of switching that we've done, different defenders, you know, on different types of players at all points of the possession, uh, that was really beneficial for us. Coach, and if I could get even further down this technical rabbit hole with you, when you are turning to run, is it, and I know it's probably player dependent, but are you wanting the offensive player to continue on maybe say an angled path towards the rim, or do you want to have them change their angle? So, you know, the guy breaks you down. What are you actually trying to do when you turn and run and get out of the stance? Yeah. Angles are so big. Like the more you can get them on like a flatter drive, you know, like not more of like a threatening penetrating drive, the better off you're going to be. If they're in the corner and they go to the middle, right of the floor, obviously we don't want them going to one of the free throw hashes or the block, right? We want them going more like out towards the elbow or, you know, for middle penetration on a wing drive. Again, we don't want them going towards the paint. We would want them going more towards the elbow or towards the sideline. So yeah, the more we talk about those angles and taking those angles and spaces away, I think the better those guys are. You're talking about, you know, taking away or trying to prevent threatening drives and non-threatening drives. The decision-making aspect that comes in then with the help and determining what is a threatening drive and what isn't, how are you working with players on that and building kind of so that they've seen it and they know when I should give help, when I shouldn't, this drive's dangerous, this drive isn't. Yeah. I mean, I think it obviously depends on who you're guarding first and then who the ball is. Right. But also I think the visual cue for us would always be like, if the ball handler's shoulders are in front of, you know, your teammate's shoulders, that's a threatening drive. And we're going to have to pull in and help, whether that's trap the box, verticality, charge, you know, depending on who you are, you know, you choose whatever the best solution is or where you're at on the floor. If his shoulders are still, you know, relatively within your teammates and you can't really see them, let your teammate just guard him. Let's stay with our own on the opposite side and let's get a good contest at the rim. But again, obviously a lot of that depends on again, who that guy is and then who you're guarding as well. You may be able to give a little bit more help if you're on a non-shooter or non-threat or whatever it is. And, you know, maybe that's LeBron James and it does or Giannis and it doesn't really matter. <laughs> you know, all that much, you got to go over there and protect the rim right there. Sure. I think a lot of all that stuff kind of plays into it. You said something maybe five minutes ago that I just wanted to double back on. And you said you can't have dirty eyes in a pick and roll. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, that's from Jay Laranaga. Football talks about it a lot where like with running backs kind of picking up different guys and blocking them. And, you know, if somebody's like looking around and they don't know like who to block, they got dirty eyes. So, you know, if you're on the ball handler and you're looking around like for a pick, like what's happening, what's going on, you're just going to get driven by, or you're not going to be able to connect well enough in a pick and roll situation, whether you're switching or in an ice in a week. Right. So that, you know, we try to tell them you have to look at your guy, stay squared on the ball. Don't be looking around and just trust the talk behind you, which again, like then would put a lot of onus on your teammates to communicate well behind you. Like, Hey, you're by yourself, by yourself, or Hey, switch coming or, you know, ice, ice week, you know, whatever your coverage is at that time, you know, they have to trust that there's great communication behind them to let them know what's going on. So they can't just stay locked in on the ball and what, and what's going on there. And coach, where are the defenders eyes when they're trying to guard someone, say one-on-one, you said that you want them looking at their offensive player, but specifically, is it their hips? Do you talk about that? Do you care? I mean, I was always told growing up, look at their hips defensively. Does that matter? 
that's what we were taught to or what I was taught to growing up. Yeah. You know, I try not to get too specific with that type of stuff. Okay. With the players that we worked with, you know, if it's something that became a problem, maybe I would, but you know, a lot of times they were here for a reason and yeah. you know, you weren't going to pick and choose your battles almost, you know, like we talked about earlier, not overload them with, with so much stuff. I always found myself looking at the players back numbers as they're driving by me. So that was never a problem for me. Yeah. yeah I was, uh, I was, I was the, uh, the Wojo disciple slapping the ground. And then as I was slapping, my guy was going right past right. me. So I'm the uh, epitome of those who can't coach, you know, like that's me for sure. <laughs> coach, I guess, I know you and Dan had talked about it earlier, but I like to discuss preparing to defend like emergency 911 situations. We always work on our rotations, our perfect rotations, where our help's coming from. But inevitably in every game, you're going to have faced situations where your rotation's a little skewed or, you know, it's been broken. And so how would you as a staff or as a coach prepare your team for situations, these gray areas, you know, these emergency situations? Yeah. I mean, I think the more disadvantaged type stuff you can do, the better in practice, whether that's four on three or four on four minus one type stuff, which kind of cultivates those decisions and problem solving. You know, I remember when I was first coming up as a coach and Brad, Coach Stevens gave me a lot of opportunities to do that early. You know, I would be so consumed with kind of what you're saying, like, oh, that rotation wasn't right or, you know, whatever. And he would always be like, these guys are going to figure it out. You know, as long as it kind of fixes itself and works itself out, I think we're going to be okay. I think just the more you can kind of put them in disadvantaged situations in practice and not being so consumed with like a perfect rotation. Listen, like in scramble situations, there isn't really a perfect rotation. It really is like, if it gets fixed, like, all right, that was about as perfect as it was going to get. You might get some funky things that go on, but as long as it gets taken care of and the nearest threats get solved, I think you're going to be all right. And he would preach that to sure. me all the time. And I, it's something I had to get really used to. Coach, one of the areas of an emergency situation that can arise is, you know, with the rise of switching across all levels, but ways to, you need to sort of protect, let's say a guard or protect a big that is on a, a switch that you don't want. What are some ways that you see that our teams are, you know, helping, let's say we'll start with a guard, protecting a guard in a bad mismatch after a switch. Yeah. So I think it first starts with like who you are as an individual defender. So, you know, if you're a small on a bigger player or like a bigger wing, I think first and foremost, you have to use your advantage that you have and use whatever kind of disadvantage that he has. Right. So, you know, if you're like a Kemba Walker on a Jason Tatum, you know, you're not going to back up and give that guy any type of cushion because Jason's just going to take it or shoot right over you. Right. If you're Kemba, like your advantage is your speed and your quickness and your ball pressure. So using that as you know, to your advantage, the best you can, then it just kind of comes down to what type of player that offensive guy is. And is he that much of a threat where we need to like cultivate some type of rotation and things like that. So if, you know, again, like a Jason Tatum and Al Horford rolls a Kimball Walker down to the post, you know, if there's a better matchup on the opposite side, which generally they would be from a size standpoint, you know, we really talk a lot about scramming and getting guys out of there in the post. If there isn't really a, a better matchup on the opposite side, then I think fronting is probably your best way to go and trying to negate that pass altogether or help to push the catch out further closer to the three-point line so that you're going to encourage, you know, maybe a tougher mid-range shot as opposed to like a, a closer shot near the paint. Or, you know, like if you are on the perimeter, kind of like on a James Harden type player, you know, maybe you're encouraging him more towards help in order to get the ball out of his hands or able to stop that drive maybe a little bit sooner than you would have if you're just guarding it from a one-on-one -on -one situation. 
Coach, with fronting versus the scram out, where is the communication coming from as far as how the guard should be knowing whether he should be fronting or looking to bounce off of there? I think as a guard, that needs to be your first thought is like, hey, I need to fight to front this and push this catch out, like however you can. Because like, like you said, you may not know that you are scramming or there might be some poor decision making on the opposite side where they just feel like they couldn't do it. So if you take a long time to work to front that post up, it's probably going to be too late for you to do that. And it's going to be a deep post catch and a finish. So I think that needs to be your first thought. You know, on the weak side, generally, we use like the free throw line as a gauge. If you're being posted up, you know, in the mid post or high post, right? Like above the free throw line extended, you know, let our smalls guard him out there. Like we were talking about earlier, let Kemba pressure, let him, you know, use his quickness to his advantage and let Kemba guard out there. But as soon as he, you know, starts to roll beneath that free throw line extended. Okay. Now we got to start to think about, you know, getting him out appropriately to the opposite side. So that's generally when we would institute the scan and get him out of there. Coach, just on the defensive side of the ball, I know you talk to a lot of people across the league. How are coaches thinking about zone defenses? They think it's really effective. You know, honestly, like a lot of times there may not be that much time to allocate towards it. You almost have to dedicate a lot of time to it in training camp or just kind of live with kind of the growing pains of it. Yeah you know, during the season, like during a game, you know, like I always hear a lot about coaches are really willing to give up shots in their man-to-man defense. But as soon as there is a shot that's made from a zone defense, it's like, oh, we got to get out of it right away, which I understand. But a lot of times too, it's like, you're frustrated with it because, you know, you haven't spent that much time on it anyways. And it's like, well, is this really worth giving up a bunch of points? Like, do we really trust it all that much? So I think people think it's really effective. I mean, you've seen teams be effective with it, like Toronto, Miami, Dallas, those guys have won championships and have gone really far in the playoffs. Not saying because of the zone, but they've utilized it. But I think a lot of it is, do we have the time to really work on this? And are we comfortable enough getting scored on with it? Coach, in your opinion, what makes a good zone? What do you feel is like a staple of a good zone defense, especially in the NBA? I might be the wrong person to ask <laughs> about that. You know, we haven't we didn't do a lot of it in Boston. I do believe in it. I think it's really good. I think the communication and the ball pressure in it is really good. I love the Miami's defense and Toronto's that we saw in the bubble. Miami being high in the gaps, taking away passing lanes, kind of negating pick and roll with that guy out of the corner and kind of leaving Bam back at the rim more so. I thought that was really good, really effective. And then Toronto just throws a gamut of different things at you and they're able to do it. They're so smart and so well coached. I think that in Canada, they call it monster, Mm -hmm. like their monster defense. That stuff is awesome. So I think Like any defense, it depends on how much you're impacting the ball, how great your communication is, and then how willing you are to cover up mistakes and play with multiple efforts and get out and contest shots and get deflections and things like that. I don't think there isn't any real secret to really what you're doing defensively, whether it's man-to-man or zone. It's really, number one, who's doing it? And then number two, how well are you doing it? You know, and are you doing it together? You know? Yeah. I'm not sure if Brad talked about this on the podcast, but like one of the things he said, which I think is really smart all the time, was like a system with no effort is a bad defense. Players that play with effort with no system is an average defense or above average defense. And then when you can combine both together, that's when you play like have like a championship level top five defense in the NBA. So like anything, it just comes down to those things there, not so much what you're doing. Well, Coach, this has been awesome so far. We want to move into a segment that we call Start, Sub, or Sit. 
And so for those listening, maybe for the first time, we're going to give you three different basketball topics. We'll ask you to start one, ask you to sub one and ask you to sit one, and then we can have a discussion from there. So we have a theme or I don't know if it's a good theme for this one called No Man is an Island, but maybe some could be in this scenario here. So these are three different types of individual type of plays or players that are valuable and which one you would want to start sub or sit. So the first one is a terrific offensive rebounder that can you know get putbacks and score as an offensive rebounder by themselves. A great unassisted field goal bucket getter. Someone that can just create and make their own shot. And then someone that can just create havoc at the rim with the ball in their hands. So it just a nightmare to keep out of the lane, constantly can attack and put pressure on the rim. So these guys don't need teammates for these things. So which one would you start sub or sit? I'd probably start the one that attacks the rim just because, you know, from an offensive and defensive standpoint, that's the one that's like the most important, I feel like, in terms of, you know, we have to attack the paint, attack the rim in order to hunt great shots, whether that's shots at the rim, fouls, or maybe even kickouts. So that's the guy I would start, sub, probably the offensive rebounder. You know, just have that guy that can get you some extra possessions, you know, whether that's for himself or his teammates. And then I guess I'm sitting the individual bucket gator. That pains me to say because I, I love those guys. But <laughs> yeah, I guess that's what I would uh, say. I'm, I'm a team guy. Yeah, sure. And a team guy. <laughs> love that stuff. Yeah. With your start, and you mentioned it about everything being kind of stemming from attacking the rim. Without giving, obviously, anything away here, just talking in pregame stuff about the aggressiveness of attacking the rim, especially early in a game through whether it's post-play or you know getting downhill on dribble drive, how much of that was discussed or is discussed as far as going into a game? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it starts even before the game. I think, you know, in preseason talks with, with your staff, you know, training camp with your team, I think that's probably your overall philosophy, right? On both sides of the ball. You know, like how can I attack the pain offensively and how can we take away pain threats defensively? Because that's how, you know, teams get the best shots. If you can cultivate a system offensively that, you know, encourages downhill drives, rolls, like rolls to the rim, back cuts and post-up situations or pick and roll. I feel like the better off your offense is going to be, you know, your offense is going to be even more efficient. And then if you can kind of devise a system defensively that can take a lot of that stuff away and alleviate pressure on the paint, you know, your defense is probably going to be successful for more often than not. So yes, you talk about it prior to the game, but I think it's just an ongoing conversation that you have throughout the entire preseason, in-season, and postseason, just something that you have to hammer on constantly. Coach, with putting pressure on the rim through the roll, what is the technique there? You know, on that roll, when do you want him releasing? What angle do you want him taking? How do you put pressure on the rim through a roll? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on, you know, what pick you're setting and what the defensive coverage is. You know, if you're setting a step-up pick and roll and they're like all the way back, like a Milwaukee Bucks, right? It's really important that you set like good physical screens in order to get that guy open because they're so good at being unscreenable, fighting through screens. And then that guy, Brooke Lopez, is just all the way back, dropped at the rim. So being able to really set good legal screens to get that guy free a little bit and then rolling, I think the better off you're going to be there. You know, if it's uh, more of like a switching situation and teams are switching, you know, one through five or one through four, whatever, and you're setting maybe like a side pick and roll. I think your angle of your picks on switches are so important. 
you know, like if you can almost set like downhill picks on switches or uphill picks when you're setting step ups on switches, the better off you're going to be to sprint out of that thing and roll hard to the rim. And it also like as a defender, if you have to switch under a pick that's happening almost like on the run or like on an angle that's like towards the corner, those things are hard to switch under and you almost have to switch over the top every single time. And that almost opens up a naked pain threat to the rim, you know, every single time against the switch, which is probably one of the worst things that you can have. So yeah, I think it depends on what coverage they're in, but angles and the physicality which you're setting screens are really important. Okay, coach, our next start sub sit for you. We call this our tough to teach segment. This is tough to teach in terms of guards reading the defense. So guards making pick and roll reads, guards making off ball screen reads. So coming off of off ball screens or guards reading the closeouts. Yeah, I think pick and roll is probably the hardest. Yeah. So I'm going to start there just because of the amount of players you're reading. You know, you have to read your own man, have to read the big, have to read the guy at the nail. The guy is the ultimate tagger, the MIG, whatever you want to call it. That's probably the hardest just from the amount of bodies that you're reading there. You know, next is probably the off ball stuff, you know, just kind of playing more into that. You're not reading as many people, but, you know, you're reading your man, maybe your teammates, defender, where you're at on the floor, you know, all that kind of stuff. Maybe who you are and who he is as an offensive player. Then probably the easiest would be the closeout just because you're really just focused on the one guy and your cues might be a little bit less in terms of what you're reading. You might be reading, can I get this shot off? Is he back further enough? Is he running me off the line? You know, am I lifting up out of the corner and should I stampede this to the middle or do I need to rip and drive it to the baseline? I think they're all difficult to teach because obviously there's human beings on both sides of the ball, but that's probably the easiest one out of the three, I would say. Coach, my follow-up on that is with closeouts and let's say not attacking the closeout, but playing into another action on a closeout. So you've got them in rotation, the ball gets kicked out and how you build into the offense, either the you know the one up or the one down where you're, you're making the extra pass to the corner or from the corner, you're one up in it to the wing. Just, I guess, repping that philosophy to move the ball on advantage closeout as well. Yeah, do you mean more so like how do we work on it? Or Yeah, so instead yeah. of a guy reading whether I should reattack the closeout for myself, but then make a play for someone else. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's something that we do a lot in our pre-practice work or pre-game work or whatever. Scott Morrison really led the charge for us on that stuff the last few years of, you know, developing really good, you know, rim decisions, whether that's in in any type of situation, closeout situations, pick and roll, handoffs, whatever it is. So really attacking the paint and then just reading, all right, do I have an open shot here at the rim or, you know, is, you know, the weak side pulling over and then who is open on that side of the floor? You know, we use coaches a lot for that Mm -hmm. in those situations and try to like almost mess with the guys a little bit in terms of like where the pass should be going. Yeah. We generally like to do a lot of that stuff, you know, pre-practice or pre-game even in some instances. All right, coach, moving to our next start sub sit for you. This one is themed tough to prepare for. So these are three different types of players that are just really difficult for you to prepare for. So start sub or sit, a terrific offensive rebounder, an elite shooter, but on the move. So one that can move off the ball and not a standstill shooter or an elite cutter. You know, I think it's probably dependent on who you have. If you have a smaller team, it's probably the offensive rebounder. You know, I think no matter what, it's going to be harder to guard a lot of those off ball guys, especially in offenses of the NBA now, which is how it's so motion offense. 
dependent on. You know, there's a lot of like staggers and wide pins and elbow splits and post splits and things like that. Those things are really, really hard to guard, which is why everybody is running them now. So that's probably what I would start. The cutter is probably the one I would sub because again, off ball actions and people just kind of staring at plays and giving up those cuts. And maybe they do get some type of offensive rebound or things like that. And then causing again, just more paint threats and things at the rim, which collapses the defense and then gets out like either layups or corner threes and things like that. Mm -hmm. And it pains me to say, but I guess I would say sit the offensive (laughs) rebounder. I mean, I, you know, for us, like we weren't a great offensive rebounding team in Boston. So that probably should be our start for a defensive rebounding team in Boston. But I think it just depends on, you know, what type of team that you have. If you have a smaller team, it's probably a little bit higher on the uh, pecking order there, especially with how important that stuff is. Coach, on the elite offensive rebounder, and I guess kind of going back to maybe when you're preparing for a team that you know, has an elite offensive rebounder, like with elite shooters on the move or elite cutters and stuff we talked about, I feel like some of those you can like systematically talk about how we're going to guard stuff defensively, but an offensive rebounder, is it just about effort? What do you talk about trying to prepare for someone who's just really great on the boards? It's effort, but it's also awareness too. Like sometimes guys just aren't aware enough. They're just looking, staring at the ball. They're not moving on to what's next. You know, they're not transitioning to whatever the next thing is that they have to do. And that's when the great elite offensive rebounder just kind of knifes through, bullies his way through there and gets an offensive rebound. Even like whether it's like a dominant one, like an Ennis Canner who can dominate you physically, right? Or like one that can do both with cutting on the perimeter, like a PJ Tucker in the Eastern Conference Finals. A lot of that comes down to just awareness and, you know, moving on to what's next. Whenever you're defending like a great offensive rebounder, I think it's important that the whole team knows that like, hey, it's not just this guy's responsibility to box out. You know, it's everybody's responsibility to number one, be aware of this guy. And then number two, if he is getting boxed out, your teammate is probably not going to be the one getting the ball because he's boxing that guy out there. So now I have to run in, go clean it up, maybe get an engaged rebound over the top, you know, whatever it is. So I think just having that overall team mentality of gang rebounding and, you know, pursuing that ball is important when defending those types of guys. Hearing you talk about building this kind of what's next mentality on the offensive rebounding and also tying it back to building better individual defenders, when you are working with them individually or Would you make it a point of emphasis to have them be doing multiple things to build this kind of what's next mentality of, you know, on ball help deny? How are you working with that? Again, I referenced Coach Stevens a lot, but, you know, his podcast with you guys was really, really good. And, you know, he talked about multiple pick and roll drills or multitasking drills that we would do. And again, I don't think it's like he said, I don't think it's unique to us. I think a lot of teams do it in the NBA, obviously, but that's just something that we would always do. Like we're always coming up with different defensive drills that kind of moves you on to whatever is next on the floor. Let's guard. Okay. Basic stagger away. Okay, now let's go into throw it to the elbow, into elbow splits. Now let's go into some type of pick and roll into a scram situation. So now you've covered like all these different topics and checked all these different things off that you have to cover defensively, you know, like within one drill. And you've built in like this next 
kind of play mentality. It's no longer like in the NBA, this slog of we're just going to throw it in or let's just guard one action and then it's isolation. It kind of comes down to that. Maybe the later and later you get into the playoffs because of the amount of switching that you have and the elite players that you do have. But, you know, a lot of times it's a couple motion offensive movement back and forth into, you know, some type of pick and roll. So we try to do that as much as we possibly can. Coach, something you mentioned a second ago too, about just always looking for new ways to implement how to guard stuff or things like that. Are there other countries or other coaches or other sports that you like to study to get ideas on how to try to stay on the cutting edge, I guess, of guarding the best players in the world? First off, like it's it's obviously not a different country, but after every season, I love going through the playoffs and just studying what those coaches or teams did from like an adjustment standpoint and like building teach tapes off of that. I think that's really helpful for me in particular from like a problem solving standpoint, trying to put myself in their shoes and figure out why they made the decisions that they made. And that's helped me like either help the coaching staff or help the players, you know, with hopefully making some level of adjustment, whether it's in the regular season or in the postseason. We all in our staff with Coach Stevens, we loved watching, you know, FIBA stuff or stuff that was overseas to get ideas. There's obviously a lot of great online tools that we've used in the past. You guys being one of them, you know, has been really beneficial to us and, and a bunch of different coaches, obviously. Thank you. From a different like sports standpoint, like, you know, I'm really interested in like football. Like I was watching a lot of like cornerback drills, you yeah. know, for like defense with like quick hips and, you know, how they drop back. I'm still studying it. I'm not like an expert, obviously, in football defensive (laughs) drills or anything, but I'm just interested in like, why do they do certain things? How do they do certain things, especially like with the quick hips and cutting guys off and things like that? It's different and it kind of keeps things fresh for me too. I think that stuff's really interesting. I think we can learn a lot from that stuff. Okay, coach, our last one we have for you. Start, sub, sit. This is in terms of lane pressure. We'll assume you're one pass away. So how would you prefer to pressure the lane? The good old fashioned deny back to the ball gap defense, a little bit off or this, the open stance deny kind of the gap deny defense. Yeah, probably I'd start the gap deny defense. I think that's really effective. If I'm understanding it, right. It's like where you're like in the passing lane, yeah, but you're also like in the gap as well. I think that stuff's really big, especially if it's like, if you're on an overloaded side. You know, you're at the top of the key defending the nail and there's somebody at the wing. One of your teammates is in the wing and then there's somebody else in the corner. I think that's when you can be like super aggressive, like up in the gap there as opposed to like in the nail. Like everybody talks about, you know, nail help and everything like that. But if you're at the nail, especially with the amount of great shooters that there are right now, like it's just going to be a wide open shot, like almost every time. But if you're like on the nail, but up the line, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's like where you almost buy yourself three or four feet to get to your man. And it's also deterring the pass from going, being a straight line drive. It's going to be over the top, a hang time pass, right? Or maybe a deflection and a steal. So I'd start that one. I'd sub the gap defense. I'm really a big fan of like, you have to be in the gap and protect your teammates and shrink the floor. You know, I think that's really important from that aspect. And then deny defense is good to some extent, but you're going to be able to give up that penetration to the rim more often than not too. You don't want to leave your teammates, in my opinion, on an island like that. So the more you can be in the gap, I think the better. And that's why I like being up the line at start more than anything else is because it's like a good combination of both things. With the deny, what are the situations? Uh, is it really more just player specific as to why we're going to deny, or are there situations where you feel yeah. like it's probably smart to deny here? 
Yeah, I think it's player specific. Like maybe if you're on a great player and you know you're just totally denying his catch altogether, that might make some sense. The other time too is is when you know say you're switching one through five and you know the big switches on to a great player, say a Chris Paul or Steph Curry or Jason Tatum or you know whoever it is, LeBron, whoever. Don't allow that guy to get the ball back. You know, say he gave the ball up to get it. You know, boomerang it, quick swing back, reversal into a, a catch sweep and drive. Or whatever. Well, don't let him get it back. Then just straight out deny him. And then I think that's when it probably makes the most sense out of anything. Coach, the open stance can at times players can lose a like a back cut when you're in that. Yeah. How will you handle, you know, you're an open stance up the lane and your guy cuts, you switch it. Do you yeah. how do you work on that? Yeah, I would say you probably switch it. That's why I think it's really important that, you know, it's almost like a recognition of I'm on like the three away side, like on the weak side. So now there's at least two people to help me and pick up any type of cutter that there might be if my man back cuts me right there. Say there's like an empty side dribble handoff or an empty side pick and roll. And if the ball gets to the middle of the floor, then I think it makes a lot of sense to be up the line, be in the gap, have more of an open stance because you're going to hopefully take away that initial quick swing to the opposite slot, right? Or you know, if there is a back cut, worst case scenario, you have enough people behind you that can help you and take that cutter right there. And you just go to the wing, you know, probably more often than not, which I think kind of plays into that decision-making aspect, you know, of like, Hey, you're three away over here, you know, or there's an empty side role. Don't just be a robot and be at the nail or be in the gap, be up the line right here. You can be a little bit more aggressive on this because of the situation that you're in. The more just calling back to that, the more you can kind of cultivate, you know, those decisions, the better. Coach, with the open deny stance, the angle, do you want them squared up? Do they have maybe their chest open to the ball or maybe squared up to where they have like a back shoulder to the ball? Yeah, the the best person I've ever seen do it, or the two really, is Van Vliet and uh, Lowry. And they're always chest open to the ball like on an angle almost, you know, it's almost like, you know, you're just straight up, not a sh- like a hard hedge or a show because you're not that aggressive on it. Right. But like, it's almost like that type of stance, mm-hmm. which again, you're just making yourself that much bigger and forcing that pass to go over the top of you as opposed to going, you know, like through you yeah. right there. Whereas like if your chest was towards like half court, you know, now you're, you're still giving up really an angle to that slot right there. But I, you know, I think it depends, like, like we were saying on, on the situation, if it's, you know, empty side, pick and roll or empty side dribble handoff, you know, whatever, then you can have more of that stance. If maybe there's only two away and say like the corners fill now, maybe you're still up the line, but you're more of like in a traditional chest to half court to see your cutter if that does happen, which is again, decision-making, you know, like I have to make the right decision there and, and recognize the situation. Cause my last follow-up in this is with talking about gap and nail help and all that in Europe, in the international game, that the next defense has been so prominent in a pick and roll with that nail help coming over and them switching and peeling off. And it's not quite, I don't think gotten to the NBA, your thoughts, I guess, on maybe why it hasn't, is it discussed or would it ever work at the level of the NBA? Like it does internationally. It's not as prevalent, maybe just because of, you know, how new it is. And, and the NBA is such like a copycat type thing. As soon as somebody starts to do it, you know, it's going to be more and more, you know, consistently, it's going to be more and more prevalent. You know, I think like anything, like we talked about with the zone, it doesn't really matter really what you're doing. 
it's are the players bought into it and yeah. you know how well are you doing it in particular like with those empty side roles that we were talking about with a triple handoff or a side pick i think that makes like perfect sense if you're not an ice team and you're more of like a drop team or whatever and allowing the ball to get to the middle like those empty side roles are really really hard to guard mm-hmm. and if you can guard it like that where now like if the ball penetrates the three point line now the nail guy just takes the ball and the guy that was on the ball goes to the opposite slot i think that makes a whole lot of sense so you can just protect the rim again take away any type of paint threats as much as possible and because of like how new it is you know offensive players won't be as aware of what the next pass or what the reads are with that yeah and that's a hard pass too like if you're just passing it to that slot there's two other defenders already over there that might be able to sneak in and get a steal and also like if that guy is next thing into the opposite slot right there with his hand in the passing lane, that's a hard pass to make. So I think people have, you know, solutions to a lot of issues in the NBA right now. That's not to say that next can't be more prevalent as maybe this year or years coming, but especially in that situation, if a ball gets to the middle on an empty side roll, I think that stuff makes perfect sense. Coach, you're off the start sub sit hot seat. Thank you for going through those with us. That was a lot of fun. That was a doozy. I appreciate it. That was sweet. (laughs) Good. (laughs) Coach, we've got one more question for you. Uh, Before we do, thank you very much. I know you're on the road traveling and and doing a bunch of stuff. So thanks for making the time for us. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Coach, as we close here, what's one of the best investments that you've made in your career as a coach thus far? Yeah, I think just, you know, the people that I've worked for, I'm supposed to say my wife, which is absolutely true, you know, like without her, I mean, honestly, like, especially during this summer that that I just had, I wouldn't be able to have navigated it. You know, I'm not saying I was successful, but mentally well enough as I would have not had her. So I should say that number one. Sure. But also just the people that I've been able and fortunate to work for, you know, Doc Rivers, Coach Stevens, you know, Mike Longabardi, Ron Adams, Darren Ehrman, Micah Shrewsbury, Jay Laranega, Jamie Young, on and on, Jerome Allen, all these guys, Kevin Eastman, Armand Hill, Ty Lu, just having those guys in my corner and being fortunate enough to work for those guys has been extremely invaluable to me. And I've learned so much from all those guys in terms of how they work, how they prepare, how they work with players and build relationships with those guys. And a lot of them too, like just how great of fathers that they are. They're such great dads. They bring their kids around all the time. They're as there for them as they possibly can be. And from at least from what I can see, they all have really good relationships with them. Mm-hmm. And that was just, you know, investing in those people, which then in turn had them invest in me, you know, was just really beneficial for me, not just in my career, but just in my personal life. You know, again, like I said, like I had my wife, we're going to have our fourth child here like any minute. And just, you know, having those people in my life showing like, hey, you can be really hardworking and successful and be a great family man as well. You know, I feel like it's been really just beneficial for me, not just professionally, but personally. Thank you so much for listening to this episode with Coach Brandon Bailey. Please make sure to visit slappingglass.com for more information on the free newsletter, SG Plus, videos, and more. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass.